Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jinping Wang, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at the National University of Singapore, about her book, In the Wake of the Mongols, The Making of a New Social Order in North China, 1200 to 1600, which was published in 2018 by Harvard University Asia Center. Wherever you look, it seems, China is presented as a monolithic and geographical and historical entity. This impression is created, we might suggest, by a kind of conspiracy of outsider generalizations and the efforts of a Beijing government, which is keen to project visions of a single Chinese political body moving forward through history. But of course, centuries of human activity unfolding across a huge chunk of East Asian territory have produced a near endless series of contingent, local, contested and multiple events. The most obvious macro-level evidence of this insuppressible diversity are the long periods during which China was under non-Han Chinese rule, including during the Manchu Qing, Mongol Yuan, and Jurchen Jin dynasties between the 12th and the 20th centuries. Jinping Wang's new book begins at the conjuncture of two of these, the Jin and the Yuan, and continues forward to the Ming period, with the 13th to 14th century Mongol Yuan as the sort of main focus. She shows us as we go the complex ways that local people responded to the Mongol invasion of northern China, which began uh, in the late 13th century, focusing on political, social and religious life in Shanxi province and introducing a cast of characters from wandering nuns to dispossessed literati, canal managers and warlords' wives. Wang conveys an amazing level of local detail for a period so far back in time. Through insights derived from not previously studied stone inscriptions, we see how a whole range of people sought to reorganize their lives amidst a period of invasion and political upheaval, which, as she also shows, had a long afterlife. Throughout, deep local insights allow Wang to bridge the gap between this long-ago world and the present. Sketches, diagrams, and contemporary photos of many of the places discussed really bring the era to life. Temples and stone tablets, which are still standing today from the year period, also reveal a level of historical continuity, which, if not quite allowing us to talk about the China uh, that is portrayed in such broad brush terms as I mentioned earlier, certainly makes studying the country's long history a compelling activity in the present. But in any case, uh, listeners, thank you very much uh, in the present for listening. As I say, uh, Jinping Wang, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ed. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's really honored to be on the podcast. Well, it's uh, great to have you on. And uh, I really enjoyed reading the book. And I hope, uh, I'm sure listeners will listen, uh, will enjoy listening to it, uh, listening to the podcast. Um, so if you could uh, start us off, perhaps by telling us a bit about uh, where you uh, studied, how you got interested in your um, specialisms and and, uh, and what your kind of background in that area is. Sure. Um, I uh, My educational background, well, uh, started from my college years in Peking University. Um, um, I studied Chinese history uh, in Beida and, and then a MA program. And from 2004, 2011, I uh, pursued my PhD program at your university, starting with Professor Valerie Hansen. And uh, on the question of how I got interested in the field, um, uh, well, I think, uh, first of all, like many people uh, in the academia, we got into the, 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 the field 
often because of some great and charismatic teachers we met. And it's it, it's uh, it, it's definitely the same for me. And what's interesting that is is that before uh, my college, um, history was actually one of my uh, most disliked <laughs> discipline in high school. And uh, partly because of history education back then uh, was very much uh, rigid and formulate. And just the whole point about learning history is for national entrance exams. And the only way we need to learn history is through memorizing the details. And plus the content of history books is quite boring. So I never uh, imagined myself would someday become a historian. But uh, uh, when I was in college, it happened that I got an un- a chance to audit uh, lectures on Imperial China by my former advisor, Professor Deng Xiaonan. Mm. And I always remember vividly that a spring in uh, 1998, when I was uh, sitting in her uh, class, her eye-opening lectures with a very clear and inspiring interpretation of Imperial China got me hooked into that history immediately. And so, um, not surprisingly, I wanted to become her student. And after uh, enrolling in the MA program as a Providence student, the closer interaction with her also allowed me to see the fascination of the scholarly, uh, uh, the career. So maybe a part of being young and naive, and I thought that was the dream life I wanted. So, what was it? What was it about uh, Professor Dong's uh, style or presentation of uh, Imperial Chinese history that really grabbed you in that way? Well, it's uh, it's very different from what we had been familiar with the Marxist interpretation of uh, the the Chinese history, and what uh, struck me most was uh, how she in, uh, explained the change of the the state institutions from the time of Song, which by by the way, I always found had found the most boring part of Chinese history, but in, in such a new way that that helping to understand a lot of things uh, why it was the case. For example, why traditionally people perceived the Song as the weak uh, dynasty, while in Providence uh, uh, lectures we saw Song dynasty in a very different uh, view. Which uh, you know is a it's a time with a very high uh, level of civilization. So anyway, that was the one reason I decided to um, embark on a scholarly career. Of course, um, back then I have no idea how stressful this life actually could be. And another reason for me to be interested in history uh, has something to do with my um, early uh, life experience in grew up in China. And as I said, um, before college, uh, of course, that wasn't the time like today we have in, in 
unlimited access of uh, information uh, through internet. Uh, the only usually um, we I learned about the outside world through the television, through the books I could have uh, access to. But still, I think. Um, I had a very naive view about uh, the world, about our own country, and you will laugh at me. I really believed in what I was taught by the book, a tech textbook. So when I first went to Beijing to study in Peking University, and that really started to open a new window for me, and it's um, it's like. It's a kind of common experience for me and many other people in my generation in late 1990s. Uh, the new information we had, uh, the 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 of of course the, the new um, understanding of the world we learned through the, the courses or the books that really uh, made a very important impact on us. Uh, but in a simple way, I always remember one of my college friends once said that we kind of experienced uh, a, a vomiting of old knowledge that turned out to be fake. And we had to find strive for new ways to fit in with new knowledge. And I decided that I don't want I don't want to be imposed on any that kind of uh, information of knowledge and and if I want to remain um, truthful or critical about the word uh, scholarly, uh, the a career with lifelong learning seems to be the most proper way. And history certainly is uh, one of the best discipline, as as a cliche says, uh, to understand the present, we want to understand the past. So that's basically my intellectual and personal background of uh, coming into interest in Chinese history. Got it, got it. And then how did that kind of carry you forward to pursuing postgraduate study and, and uh, ultimately working on uh, this particular period and Shanxi and so on. Right. Uh, it's also uh, I had uh, inf- the the professor Deng Xiaonan's approach to history had a very important uh, impact on me in my early academic career. And uh, when I was her student, um, um, well, she expertise in Song Dynasty history, particularly uh, political and institutional history. And I guess. At some point, uh, again, was young and still naive. I didn't really like to study the political and institutional aspect of China. Maybe I was too young to appreciate the importance of understanding China. And but I found uh, I myself more interested in a new emerging field of social history, which was clearly influenced by the Anglophone studies of Chinese history. So uh, Professor Deng um, encouraged me to study um, social change in China that, uh, you know, um, in the Song, uh, the Song history, there's a kind of a watershed moment in 1127 when the north part of China was uh, conquered by the Jurchen. 
So originally, uh, then I was just suggested me to study how the Northern society changed or continued under the Jurchen rule. So that uh, became my MA thesis topic. And uh, when I decided to pursue the PhD program, then I also told me that if you, you are serious, if you are serious considering doing, working on the social history, then you have to go to the United States to study with those experts. So that basically became the 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 the, the, the reason for me to uh, uh, apply to a PhD program in the in, in the in the US. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, what's your impression? Has this situation changed much in the intervening years in terms of a focus on social history in China itself? I mean, is this is this uh, a, a kind of direction that has gained more ground uh, in the time since you started graduate school? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think now it's, well, it's now no longer a new field. It's a field has been developed uh, and flourished. I see. Oh, well, that's uh, that, that, that's great. So, it, it, another you in the present might uh, might have remained in China, um, but uh, in any case, you uh, uh, studied uh, in the US for your PhD, um, and but not talking about the song, uh, talking about the the Yuan was, was that's that, right. That was yeah. your, your focus yeah. uh, in your in your graduate work. So, um, how did the how did the book come about? Uh, was it something directly coming from your PhD? Yes, the book uh, derives from the PhD dissertation. And um, as I mentioned, uh, um, uh, my research started from the long-term social change in North China after uh, 1127. But to my disappointment uh, that I found that the Chinese society under Jurchen rule did not change much as I had expected. So uh, um, I while I continued the, the research uh, during the graduate school, writing the dissertation, I was um, what what struck me most is that it was actually not the Song Jing transition, but the Jingyuan transition, and specifically the Mongol conquest that mm. triggered the structure change both in the society and in the politics. So that uh, basically uh, guided me to shift my interest from the Song and the Jing and all the way to the Mongols. And uh, plus, I was always fascinated by this period of, of uh, the Mongol era. Uh, it was uh, 20 years ago, it was the least studied field in imperial Chinese history, I think. Right, right. Oh, well, then you, uh, yeah, you, you were a pioneer uh, into into this uh, into this era, perhaps. Um, so, oh, well, perhaps we'll jump in uh, to the sort of introduction and, and how you set the book up, um, uh, specifically in relation to the Yan Dynasty. Um, perhaps you could begin by talking to us about the but what what was it that made the uh, Mongol period, the Yuan period, uh, distinct from other foreign dynasties? Um, as you say, I mean, uh, certainly anyone who studies contemporary or, or, or modern history uh, in China uh, is, you know, may may blithely assume that the Jin and the and the Mongols, the the Jurchens and the Mongols, they both come from the north, and surely there are continuities there. Um, but as you say, this was a, a radical transformation. So, could you 
perhaps uh, give us a general picture of what that transformation was under the UN? Sure. Well, first of all, the Mongols differed from other foreign dynasties, uh, such as uh, the previous Jurqing Jin or the later the Manchu Jin. Due to unprecedented destruction they inflicted on the Chinese society, especially in North China during the conquest. Mm. So that um, throughout the Chinese history, we knew that uh, Chinese society experienced multiple devastating invasions uh, by various foreign conquerors. Yet none was as catastrophic at the Mongol conquest of North China in the early 13th centuries. As, I, as my book points out, that uh, the, the, the two decades of conquests and wars um, wiped out more than half of the population in North China, ruined much of the infrastructures and the farmland. So it basically dismantled the existing social order um, together. And this prolonged and traumatic nature of this conquest thus provoked massive depopulation and migration, which would in turn resulted in major changes in social structure. So one key change in this uh, social structure occurred in the nature and identity of elites in Chinese society. That's how the, my book started from. And put in a simple way, the Chinese educated literati who had dominated elite life in both the previous Northern Song and Jing dynasties were now replaced by uh, previously marginalized social groups, especially the military strongmen and the religious leaders. And another key change in the social structure during and after the Mongol conquest was the whole new system um, of social stratification created by the Mongolian regime. So first of all, they they classified uh, its subject according to their ethnic and professional identity as defined by the Mongols. This, I think, many people who be familiar with Yuan history would know that Mongols famously divided all people into four ethnic groups in the descending order of legal status. The Mongols on the top, of course, and then the Sumo people who were the various categories of Central and Western Asian peoples as a second, mm-hmm. and then the Han people and who were mostly residents of previous Jin dynasty were ranked in third, and the Southerners who were resident previous resident of the North Southern Song uh, were ranked at the bottom. So this ethnic four-rank system was fundamentally a form of political stratification. It often came into play when the government handed out the office and other state owners. Meanwhile, Along with the redefining ethnic identity, the Mongols also established a complex household system that organized the people into many hereditary household categories. And as a form of rigid social stratification, this household system yielded to a static society oriented to serve the needs of the Mongol imperial family and the Mongol state. So this is how the structure changed uh, after the Mongol conquest. 
right, right, the, yeah. at the social level. Mm-hmm. And at the political level, well, um, by the way, this is a major um, departure of my book from the dissertation that I incorporated in more discussion about uh, how the Mongol conquest and rule introduced the, the, the new political order that uh, provided the most immediate context for the the image of social change that I described in the book. So politically, unlike other foreign dynasties uh, like the Jurqing Jing and the later Manchu Qing that used the Chinese administrative models to rule Chinese population, the Mongols uh, had a very distinctive way to do so. In addition to borrowing some Chinese dynastic institutions, they were much free, uh, freer in borrowing from multiple historical models um, and from the nom- their own nomadic traditions, uh, from Islamic and Central Asia regimes that they learned over over uh, the course of their conquest. So as a result, what we see is that the Mongols created a uniquely decentralized political order in China. Mm-hmm. And um, most interestingly is that the first they allowed multiple centers of legitimate political power held by all members of the royal family, including uh, Mongol emperors, of course, and Mongol empresses and princes and their sons-in-law and even the, the, the uh, distinguished generals. So put in a simple way, they reintroduced a certain uh, system of uh, aristocracy, which had already vanished in China after the ninth century. Wow. And then second, the Mongols also established various routes, both formal and informal, to these centers of power. And in their recruitment practice of bringing uh, different Chinese people into their government, they did not prefer the the um, civil service examinations. They actually uh, suspended the, this defining Chinese institution for the majority of the dynastic time. And uh, quite um, differently, they preferred um, the heredity transmission, which was... Uh, uh, Deeply, uh, which was a, 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 a strong tradition of the step politics, and they also preferred personal connections in recruiting officials. So along the uh, the way of suspending Chinese uh, the examinations, the Mongol system of the politics successfully excluded most Chinese literati from the political power. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, personal connections and job performance instead replaced literary, literary skill and Confucian learning as the major qualifications for entrance to and promotion within the Mongol Yuan officialdom. Right, right. So for many Chinese families and their men, 
would they face now in the Mongol era to uh, if they aimed to achieve upward social mobility by having access to the government office, which is always the the the, the route for uh, Chinese families throughout its history. The most effective way for them to do so was to gain and secure the personal connections to the the Mongol imperial families or other powerful patrons. I see, I see. Yeah. Well, well, we'll, we'll do, uh, move on in a second, I think, to uh, some of the experiences of those, those literati family that you mentioned. Right. Um, I guess just one general question that pops up uh, in relation to the broad changes that you've described um, when it comes to, in particular, this kind of uh, ethnicized uh, social hierarchy, the four different right. uh, groups, as you mentioned, and also the radical transformation of, of political structure and right hierarchies within that um again this this question comes from uh, from a, a, a sort of pretty ignorant standpoint much closer to the present but given discussions uh, and and the long long standing now relatively long standing existence of, of a new Qing history and a new interpretation of uh, of of the more recent uh, foreign i guess uh, dynasty in china um what is what are the conversations are there conversations around uh, a new yuan history uh, are there controversies over the the, the, the differentness of of this uh, period in chinese history and uh, is is that th- something that is in the uh, in the field of of yuan studies well, first of all, I've never heard anyone in the field to mention the new Yuan history or the new Qing history uh, in parallel to the new Qing history. But if we consider the two salient features of the new Qing history study, uh, namely seeing the Qing as a Eurasian empire, and playing, uh, paying much attention to non-Chinese sources, I think it's safe to say that there are indeed parallel scholarly uh, trends in the Yuan studies. And while it is common knowledge that um, non-Chinese sources, especially the Persian Arabic sources, are equally crucial to studying the Mongol history. Mm. But for quite a long time, the studies of the Mongol Empire uh, or the studies of the Mongol Yuan China, they belong to um, two separate fields. The, the, the formal, more or less, belong to study of the Inner Asia uh, field and the later, more or less, in the Chinese history. So um, also, this is partly uh, due to the difficulty of studying the Mongol Empire, um, the linguistic difficulty. Um, if you want to bridge that gap, you have to master, uh, first of all, the two most important primary sources in language of Chinese and Persian, and then you want to include more uh, sources in language of Arabic and Russian and even medieval European languages. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a reality, but uh, indeed in the field we see that in recent decades, there are scholarly efforts to deliberately uh, bridging that gap precisely through using the multi linguistic sources. So the studies by the Japanese scholar uh, Siyama Masaki or the, the American scholars uh, Christopher Edward, uh, it's clearly show this direction. Mm, and yeah, so, but I don't think this is a, 
kind of influence from the new Qing history, I think it has as a field as inherent um, direction that as long as scholars could uh, bridge the gaps uh, of the, the sources and plus with a broader Eurasia perspective rather than the, the Chinese uh, perspective alone would be the natural direction of the field. That's, that's very interesting. And, and, and also, as an aside as well, on your sources um, in, in, in your particular study, um, perhaps you could just uh, br- briefly say what you were drawing on in order to uh, zoom into this level of local detail that you present in the book and then and then we'll actually get on to talking about what that local detail was right uh, well the the major source base my book um, has drawn from are the local materials particularly the steles and the steely inscriptions um, those are the materials um, the different local communities different local individuals and families uh, they installed uh, in 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 different localities, sometimes within temples, sometimes uh, at the graveyard. And um, of course, before my book, it's uh, not new knowledge that inscriptions are important source base for our study for of local history. Actually, I was inspired by my year professor, advisor, Vera Hansen's first book, uh, The Changing God in Medieval China, which used a lot of inscription to study the popular religion in southern, in, in southern China. Um, but my uh, use of the is those studies in inscription was a bit different from um, the generation before mine was uh, mainly because um, I drew a lot of new information of these materials from fieldwork. Mm-hmm. So the first time I uh, went to the place I studied, uh, namely Shanxi, to, to collect these materials was in 2003 when I was writing my MA thesis. And before the field work, I kind of assumed that a lot of materials we already have in the transmitted text, like the local gazetteers or the collection of the inscriptions that had had become a popular practice among the Qing scholars after the 19th century or the collection of literati and sources. But to my great surprise from my first field work, I realized the importance of uh, approaching the studies and inscriptions from a different ways. Uh, that being said, that uh, the being in the field allowed me to see the the first of all the the discrepancy uh, the, the the discrepancy between the inscription on the stone and the description in transmitted text. And the second, um, allow me to see the existence of a rich body of unpublished materials. Mm-hmm. So um, from 2003, that's my first time field working in Shanxi, and all the way to 2014 when I conducted the last field work for the book project, 
uh, I collected hundreds of uh, those uh, local materials, and and that allowed me to portray a vivid uh, picture of the local society that had experienced uh, the centuries-long transformation from the Jurchen all the way to the to the Middle Ming period. Great, great, yeah, and uh, I fully agree that uh, the vividness and the and the real kind of this sense of intimacy, really, with people's lives and, and what's going on uh, in, right. in in that part of uh, of the world at the time is a real strength of the book, and you convey it uh, beautifully. Um, we'll move in then to the first of the sort of uh, the first cha- uh, main chapter um, where you discuss uh, some of the changes that occurred uh, after the invasion you focus on uh, Yuan Haowen a uh, particular literati figure who right. uh, I guess very conveniently uh, had a career which uh, or a life which spanned or overlapped with precisely the period when uh, the Mongols uh, turned up on the northern northern fringes um, right. so uh, could you tell us something about Yuan Haowen and his uh, life and, and, and how his story uh, reveals uh, what, what it reveals to us about the status and the fate of Han literati uh, un- under Jin and then as, as the Mongols, uh, as the Yuan began. Sure. Uh, well, Yuan Haowen was one of the most famous uh, the Chinese literati in the uh, late Jin period. And he produced uh, also he I used him as the the major implement for my first chapter and traced his his life experience uh, as a window to demonstrate the society before the Mongol conquest and after was uh, Partly because he was the most uh, productive writers of the late Jing, and he left the the richest body of materials about the late Jing society and early Mongol period, uh, including his anthologies and and his collected biography of Jing literati and uh, anecdotes. So um, he he. And also, he himself was a fascinating figure, um, being a talented scholar, uh, good at uh, poetry. Uh, I loved his poetry a lot. Um, and I, when I was writing the chapter, I remember that um, I often, start, like a ritual, often started to read his poetry for 20 minutes around, and then, then kind of uh, emotes a little bit to thinking about his experience and then started to write. So um, his, uh, his, his uh, life experience, which had my first chapter divided into three major parts, uh, nicely parallel to the Jing society that had witnessed a flourishing of uh, examination-based society, uh, which continued in the Song. Um, and then um, after the 12th, 11, uh, when the Mongols first attacked the Qing, Yuan Haowen's experience uh, again um, paralleled the experience of many Northern literati who were struggling with being dislocated uh, to the new uh, capital of the Qing and uh, making a living because the majority of their family had lost their 
property and connections back home, uh, back hometowns, and while still trying to pass civil service examinations. Yeah. And then his uh, last uh, period of his life from 1234 to uh, 1257, about um, a little more than two decades, that was uh, at the end of the the, the Jing rule, and then early early period among the Mongol rule. His experience showed vividly how, first of all, many northern uh, former Jing the, the the literati lost all their uh, political and social elite status. Now many of them, um, they had to rely on emerging new elites for survival. So for Yan Haowen himself, he relied on a group of warlords and other uh, others, and many, many um, are his friends uh, and even his own daughter who embarked a very different path of life um, being transgendoist, um, monks or nuns, in order to survive the, 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 the chaos. Hmm. So um, his whole life experience uh, was a kind of micro history of not just the four literati, but the whole northern, uh, the whole Jing society and its uh, civil culture uh, experience those stages of flourishing, decline, and demise. Right. Uh, in the conjuncture of the Mongol conquest, yeah, it really it really captures that his life story, and I think your uh, the, the poetry ritual that you describe of uh, immersing yourself before getting down to writing really works because um, <laughs> personally, I felt like I was really following this guy along, and um, there's something, something slightly tragic about or tragic comic movie about his re- he repeatedly fails the uh, exams, and then he finally passes right. seemingly at the worst possible time when suddenly. Right. Uh, it's not actually any use anymore, um, and so yeah, there's a real a real richness with which I think his life story evokes um, the struggles uh, that that people in his position were going through. Um, but you mentioned these alternative strategies for seeking social advancement that people adopted, um, including allying with warlords and then also becoming more involved with uh, religious orders. Um, so your second and third chapters focus respectively on the Chenjun Taoists that you just mentioned and the Buddhists, uh, Buddhist order. Um, so could you sort of describe for us, please, uh, how the religious landscape changed under the Mongols, um, how, how it was that each of these respective religious traditions uh, was able to um, attain a new role and how people interacted with them uh, as the Mongols took, took charge? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, um, the um, emerging new religious order, particularly the Transcendoist and the Buddhist, um, occurred in, in a broader political context, as I mentioned earlier. But one specific aspect I probably didn't uh, highlight in, in the earlier introduction about this transformative political order that the Mongols brought into China was um, the, 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 how they, uh, the Mongols preferred recruiting the people based on their personal connections and the job uh, performance. 
so among those uh, different occupations, the Mongols uh, uniquely preferred uh, the four uh, social groups that, uh, judging from the traditional Chinese standards of the Northern Song or even under Jirting, would be, uh, you know, as kind of marginalized group. They include the military man, they include the, the specialist household, and the, the most in, interesting group was the religious leaders. So both Buddhist and the Doist, they, they emerged as a powerful social elite and in the Buddhist case later even as a political elite in, in this new political environment. And um, for the story of the Trenton Doist, what's um, most striking about this movement is that uh, how fast it uh, transformed from an originally local ascetic uh, religious movement um, that attracted a few followers to a nationwide religious order that uh, not only brought in um, people from all walks of life, uh, my, as my chapter shows, there are two distinguished, distinguished social groups that were accommodated in the transgenderist order during and after the Mongol conquest. First was the former Jing Liderati, and the second was the Northern women um, from... Um, all kinds of uh, the social background, including the previous Jiuqing noble women, the previous you know, women, the women from the elite families or village you know, ordinary families, and um, so the the reason why the 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 Trenchendoist was successful in. Um, appealing to the, 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 the Northerners in the early 13th century, my chapters, um, explains from the doctrinal, uh, social and political, uh, aspects. And in putting a simple way, doctrinally, the, the, the transgenderism, especially under the leadership of Chu Chuji, who was one um, met Chinggis Khan and gained the, Mon- the Mongols' patronage, uh, they were inherently, inherently concerned about the public welfare. And so they made a strategic shift of their religious development from the previously ascetic practice to the salvational goal of saving the people in troubles. Mm -hmm. And what they did was to use the privilege they got from the Mongols, especially the Chinggis Khan, and turn them into uh, their own institutional strength. So for example, um, the Unlike the previous, the Northern Song or the, the Jirtingjing state, the early Mongol rulers, uh, I, I would argue they probably didn't know much about the religious landscape in China before. They kind of generously granted a lot of privilege to the transgenderists that had been reserved for the states. Mm. For example, the, the autonomy of 
issuing the ordination certificates, the autonomy of uh, issuing the monastic plaques, which were the most effective uh, strategies the Chinese states, imperial states often used to control the religious population and religious uh, communities. And in this uh, early uh, in the early Mongol periods, the Trenton leaders capitalized on these newly gained privileges. And, and the, for example, they, they distributed those uh, ordination certificates among the northern the refugees, especially the um, prison of war. And because according to Tinkistan's edict, one could gain the freedom as uh, only he only needed to be to do this disciple to gain the freedom. So uh, at the time, um, as I explained in, in, in the introduction, we have to always keep in mind that that was the time that when the society was experienced uh, extremely pain and dislocation and destruction. And Chunzhen in Doizen proved to be the most effective way to help people navigate those difficulties while providing new means of life to people. So, for example, the, the most um, um, surprising evidence came from how they provided the former Jing literati who joined the religious order new uh, jobs in the Trenton order and a new lifestyle in, in, in the Trenton monasteries mm. uh, through creating the, the educate a new Trenton Doist education system and um, encouraging or also encouraging those the uh, formal team literati to write the Trenton history, to compile the Trenton materials. So many formal Jing literati became uh, eminent Trenton masters as lecturers, as uh, the leaders of monastic institutions, and some even became the Trenton patriarch. Mm-hmm. And similarly, they also used their institutional strength to provide the most vulnerable social group, namely the Northern women, especially from those uh, help powerless the peasant class, the new way to survive. Right. So, um, um, as my the chapter uh, gives a few examples how women from uh, different uh, previous social groups, including the noble Jurchen women and the village women, that the Trenton order gives them different ways to play public leadership roles in rebuilding the local communities. Right, right. And for powerless village women in particular, having a transgenderist identity first guaranteed their safety in this chaotic time, and second, they give them uh, institutional support, both by human material resources and by political connection that um, 
the whole Quanzhong order had achieved. Um, so these women were able to carve out a space for themselves, for their children, especially for women who had lost their husbands, lost their parents, and they allowed them to have a new way of life in the Quanzhong convents. Meanwhile, these Quanzhong convents were also uh, functioned as the orphanages. So we found the examples. We see that many Quanzhong nuns they uh, actively brought in the orphaned uh, young girls into into the Quanzhong convents, and they also. Um, some of these Quanzhong institutions even helped their monks and nuns uh, to take care of their natal families' graveyards. Right. Because uh, the, the, at the time, the, a large number of Chinese families were fragmented. And as a key concern for Chinese culture, uh, you know, there's a norm of filial piety. Taking care of your ancestors, their dead spirits, their tombs was not a small matter. Great. So in this chaotic time, the the Trentendoism as a religious institutions provided a very uh, innovative ways for both the living and the dead <laughs> to survive and in a way even to 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 thrive as we see. In some careers of these uh, Chen monks and the nuns, they were able to uh, establish those uh, the connections to high level uh, the Mongol imperial families, the 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 powerful patrons that um, they could use turn these uh, political connections into useful social resources when they. Uh, expanded their institution throughout North China. I see. And and how did that compare? I mean, those are really terrific insights to have uh, regarding the, the, the transformation of the relative centers of power and, and who was taking care of people as well, I guess, um, at that at that time. Certainly, there are more, more recent examples of, uh, I guess, powerful groups uh, ravaging uh, the, the, the population and then leaving it up to uh, uh, charity and religious organizations to take care of uh, the social side. Um, right. But, uh, without going into that, um, how did the how did the position of Buddhism compare to what you just described with regard to um, social organization and, and, and social support and then also political power? Well, on the um, social level, the Buddhism played an uh, equally important role, but uh, I would argue that in the early Mongol era or in the immediate uh, uh, decades after the Mongol conquest, it was mainly the Quanzhong Doits that played the leading roles of rebuilding local communities. Um, but the Buddhism, um, while taking up similar roles in the social reconstruction, their distinctive place in the um, uh, Yuan China was uh, the unique strength they achieved in the political world. Mm. And this happened uh, af mainly after 1260 when Kublai Khan became the, the great Khan of the Mongol Empire. And due to his personal um, belief in Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, 
um, from the Kublai Khan's world arrow, uh, the reign onward, the Buddhism replaced the transgenderism to become the, the leading religious organization. And now not just in North China, but in South China as well, after the Mongols conquered Southern Song in 1279. And the, the Bo- Bo- Buddhists also created a distinctive religious order nationwide, but in a very different ways from the transgenderists. Mm. So the transgenderists uh, it was very, very interesting that it created um, a centralized um, religious organization with the headquarters in Yanjing and, and in today's Beijing mm. and having its, uh, its uh, national leader, Chen Zhen Patriarch, who would often be sanctioned and authorized by the Mongol state. And it has the this, this three different layers of institutions, uh, the top, as I mentioned, this uh, headquarter and the regional, the, the, the regional centers of uh, often center uh, surrounding the uh, one major Chuanzhen institution, like the Palace of Eternal Joy I described in Chapter 2, and then the, the different local level institution. So the Chuanzhen Doist Order is, uh, was uh, built upon its own institutional structure. But the Buddhist order was in, was a bit different as that uh, prior to 1260 when the Mongol state created a nationwide uh, institution order for Buddhism, the Buddhist communities and Buddhist lineages in China, um, they did not have a similar centralized structure. They had nominal leaders, but uh, their organization did not work as uh, effectively as the transgenderist did. So that explained to some extent why it was the transgenderist who could use their um, highly organized institutions to play leading roles in the low, the post-war community rebuilding. Mm-hmm. But the Buddhist they benefited from the state patronage much more than the the the, the doism after 1260. So basically, what happened was that um, this was the, the the one aspect, as I mentioned in the introduction about the new political orders the Mongols brought. The the. Basically, the, the Mongols made the religious administration, especially the Buddhist administration, a separate and semi-autonomous bureaucracy, which uh, was in, relatively independent from the civil bureaucracy while enjoying the, the equally important significance and privilege. Mm-hmm. So... That means that this new Buddhist order created by and within the Mongol regime opened a new way for Chinese men to uh, achieve the political office through an unconventional way, namely through the religious ladder, especially the Buddhist bureaucracy. Right. So right. The, my chapter, um, the chapter three, uh, use a, a, a local case study uh, on a 
Buddhist monk official named Zhang Zhiyi uh, on um, Mount Wutai mm. and explored in detail how his monastic career benefited his uh, natal family in the local Dingxiang uh, County and how their kinship institution closely overlapped with the monastic institution on Mount Wutai, giving men like Zhang Zhiyi and his younger brother and his two sons uh, the, the distinct ways of um, having access to the government office, not just in Buddhist bureaucracy, but also other government agencies that related to Buddhism, mm. and also help their native family to um, become a village elite to back their home village. Right. So right. Uh, it was it was a very uh, very unique episode of Chinese uh, both Chinese society and Chinese religion that we had not expected to see in that in, in the middle period China. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage listeners to uh, to pick up the book and and get into that because yeah, as you say, it's a really fascinating and and uh, again as in many areas of the book a compellingly detailed uh, look at, at an individual's life which tells us a lot. Um, we don't perhaps have time to go into detail either about the following chapter uh, four, which discusses uh, also a similarly kind of intimate and, uh, and uh, close uh, quarters level of life, uh, particularly in the irrigation associations and uh, rural communities, uh, and how some of these religious dynamics, as well as others, uh, other power dynamics played out on the ground. But again, uh, I would say to listeners that they should uh, buy the book and uh, read that because that's really where lots of the um, dynamics that we've been discussing in general terms uh, play out in fascinating ways. Uh, but finally, Jinping, perhaps we'll move on yeah. to the last chapter, um, chapter right. five, which discusses continuity and change uh, and how uh, these patterns that you're describing that got laid down during the Mongol period carried forward into the Ming. Uh, this is right. another area which... Uh, is particularly fascinating just in terms of the longer-term transformations that this period wrought. So what were the continuities and what were the changes that you wanted to highlight here? Well, the continuity that I highlighted, I tried to highlight, is uh, the, the, this, the so-called the new social order that I have uh, spent three chapters to describe uh, from transcendentalism to Buddhism to this, uh, the clergy's uh, role in the irrigation society. Uh, I tried to demonstrate how this new social order continued uh, in the particular locality of Shanxi uh, in some ways um, similar to the Mongol era. And on the change, I mainly focus on how this the, the Yuan-style social order gradually vanished in, in, in the Ming, Shanxi, and how from the mid-16th century, a totally new different pattern of social change emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So did that carry forward? I mean, in a wider area than Shanxi, is what is your sense of of the the sort of residue there from the Mongol period uh, into the Ming? I mean, when we're talking about whether you know uh, New Yuan histories exist and and so on, one of the hallmarks of the Qing too, or, or New Qing history, right. is looking at how Qing uh, and Manchu patterns really carried forward into into China's twentieth uh, century too. Um, is there evidence of these things, uh, a prolongation of Mongol ways of doing things in a, in a broader sense uh, in Ming China? Well, um, it wouldn't uh, be the case for the whole Ming China, but my uh, chapter argues that it would be the case for some regions, especially in North China, will had uh, the, this uh, institution that is a uh, that was the, the the Mongol legacy in the Ming, uh, namely the the princely institution, mm. and their existence helped the religious the organized the organized religions in in other words Buddhist and Taoist to continue in a very different social political world of Ming, and this goes back to the point of the Mongol era. Um, of the new social order featured in the religious dominance, uh, as I mentioned in the the conclusion that um, the, in the Mongol era, these either transcendentalist and Buddhist, their powerful social uh, presence benefited fundamentally from the three types of political resources they had access to. So first the the Mongol imperial family's patriarch, and and in which was manifested in the, the state, uh, the 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 pro-religious policy like uh, uh, tax exemptions mm-hmm. that played a big part for both religious to accumulate enough wealth and materials to able to play the the roles as I described. And second is the 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 religious bureaucracy they built for Buddhist and to a less degree for the the Doist too. And the second was those uh, different centers of power, especially the members of imperial families. They also acted as the regional patrons for the religious clergy. Mm-hmm. So when it came into the Ming era, we see the, uh, the rapid um disappearance of such political conditions for the organized religions mainly um for the first two categories the and the Zhuan Zhang's the Ming founders religious policy was very much uh restrict the religious population or even persecute Buddhism and the Taoism so the 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 clergy no longer enjoyed the legal and the political status they had in the main, in the head in the yuan, mm. and the most the religious group, uh, except for a few religious centers like Amount Wutai, they still enjoyed imperial patronage. But the nationwide, they lost the state support, including the tax exemption, uh, the tax exemption privileges. But on the third category. The patronage from those uh, the the separate powers of center centers of power that mark a big difference among different regions. 
Right. So for regions like Shanxi, as I uh, described in the chapter, um, and also in other northern Chinese regions uh, like Shanxi, like Shandong, they they all had the um, princely institutions installed by Zhu Yanzhang. And in the early Ming era, they enjoyed um, tremendous political, economic, and social power. Although after the Yonglu era, uh, when we know that Yonglu Emperor usurped the throne by using his princely army and uh, power, overall, the Ming tried to circumscribe the princely authority. But in those regions, the, the princely institutions still um, played a, a role as the powerful patronage, powerful patrons for the other social groups. Right, so right. as I chapter demonstrate, and they, they, they created a kind of patron-client relations with some religious group, um, but for their own interest, and, and that was different from the Mongol period's case. But nonetheless, we see this uh, kind of continuity of the patron-client relationship between the religious organizations and uh, those, um, in a way, we can call them uh, aristocratic nobles. Right, right, um, right. Well, that, so only, yeah, so only after that patron side, they, they themselves started to withdraw from the historical state. Uh, we saw this new order that emerged after the Mongol conquest came to a permanent end in the mid uh, mid Right, right. And uh, well, I think uh, tracing that gradual sort of fade out, that kind of transition is also a really important uh, aspect of this book from the Jin to the Yuan and then from the Yuan to the Ming uh, helps us not to understand Chinese history as cut up into, uh, you know, Song, uh, Jin, Yuan, Ming, Qing, but in this kind of, uh, sort of as though one period directly ends uh, and the next one is a complete transformation. Um, so that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jinping. We've taken up a fair bit of your time. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for explaining you know, your work to us and, and really shedding light on an area which um, I think is a particularly fascinating part of, of, of Chinese history. Um, before we go, perhaps uh, you could answer our traditional New Books Network final question, uh, namely, what is it that you're working on currently? Uh, well, I'm currently working on two projects, and both of them actually continues uh, my inquiry about the Yuanming transition that was uh, only touched upon in my first book. Actually, the, the fifth chapter about the Ming was a major departure of my book from the dissertation. If you, the, the, the book basically ended 200 years, uh, 200 more years of time span uh, comparing to the dissertation. But it does get me um, think about how the a new dynastic transition from the Yuan to the Ming and from the non-Chinese rule to the Chinese rule again um, could have triggered new ways of social and cultural change in North China. Mm. So the um, in line with this 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 
the thought, the first project now I'm working on is uh, an intellectual and cultural history of transgenderism in the Ming and period. Uh, well, the, the, I really got interested in this religion, is, is this religion when I was doing research for the first book. And, but my first book basically only look at this religion from a social social historical perspective and it only demonstrates the the unprecedented level of social reach of this religion. But I was curious about uh, how this transgenderism, which started as a local level ascetic religious group to a national level large doist uh, school, which even uh, continues till today that there's being one of the two major religious schools. And I want to, uh, in, in, in my new project, I want to look at how some critical transgenderist ideas and the practices seeped into cultural expressions in the UN and the Ming. So, for example, in the forms of the temple murals and the Northern drama text and uh, some Ming novels like The Journey to the West. Mm. So basically, I try to understand how this religion's uh, kind of tenaciously survived the early Ming uh, persecution and continue to grow and become a major Major Doist School in China in late Imperial China. Great, great. And how about and the other my, project? Yeah, my second project uh, focuses a region, a region of Datong, mm. which is the uh, most northern part of uh, Shanxi, and it was uh, it deliberately excluded from my first book, and uh, this is due to its a distinctive, uh, its own distinctive historical trajectory. And because unlike most other the North uh, Shanxi regions and in general uh, North China regions, the Datong region was a major part of the so-called 16 prefectures that were given to the Kitan in 936 during the Five Dynasty period. So these regions, uh, they experienced more than 400 years of consistent non-Chinese rule under Kitans, Jurqing, and the Mongols until 1368 when the Ming overthrew the Yuan. So focusing on Datong and again drawing from the local materials uh, through fieldwork, um, my new book project uh, aims to delineate this trajectory of social change of this particular region from the 10th century all the way to this, uh, the 17th century. And um, I well, uh, due to the the distribution, the availability of the sources, the majority part of the book will focus on the Ming period, and partly because I want to explore how this region transformed from a consistent part of the inner Asia world instead of the Chinese, uh, Han Chinese world, mm. and, and then um, kind of hinterland of Mongol Empire to a new um, 
immediate borderland, a defense line of the Ming Empire against the Mongols. Wow. So I want to examine how this newly made Chinese frontier society worked, well, first under the interplay of the four key institutions of, of Ming China in, in, in the Northern Frontier Society, namely the military, the princely, the religious, and the mercantile. And then second, um, under the close interactions between the Han Chinese and the Mongols in the two sides of Great War via war and the trade. So uh, in basically, um, I wanted to continue my inquiry that I started to um, um, think about uh, when writing the, 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 the fifth chapter of the first book about the, the new transformation of frontier society in the Ming. And with, with their close contact with, uh, with the Mongols, because uh, I always have this fascination about the Mongols and their importance in, in the Chinese history that I believe has been underestimated. Sure. Well, I think I think you've uh, demonstrated very well in in this book uh, that, that that importance uh, needs to be reckoned with, and uh, I'm sure uh, these other exciting sounding projects will similarly help to uh, raise issues that, uh, as you say, have been have been overlooked. I think they sound uh, they sound fantastic. Um, in any case, uh, thank you so much again, Jinping, uh, for being on the show. Uh, it was great talking to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. And uh, and listeners, thank you too for listening uh, to New Books in East Asian Studies, which is a podcast on the New Books Network. Uh, we will speak to you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>